Thank you for downloading the Kol Hadash podcast. Aaron Elster was born in 1933 in Sokolov Podlotsky in Poland. In 1941, the 6,000 Jews living in Sokolov Podlotsky were forced into a ghetto. And in 1942, the ghetto was liquidated. As the Nazis rounded up the inhabitants for transport to Treblinka, at his father's urging, he fled the Nazis and found refuge in the attic of a Gentile family. In this episode, Aaron relates his amazing story of survival. More information about Aaron Elster can be found at aaronelster.com. This content may not be suitable for younger or sensitive listeners. It contains graphic descriptions of violence, torture, and murder. One of the reasons people like myself speak is because of our age, because we feel that we are short on survival. And uh, pretty soon there's not going to be any of us around. And unfortunately, there are still people also denying that the Holocaust and these genocides have ever happened. So it's incumbent upon us to say and to tell the story and to try to get young people to know what happened. And if we're not careful, these things are happening again in different places of the world. But personally, my job is to try to instill in you young people the idea that you cannot afford to be bystanders. Each one of you can make a change and help change this world for the better. And that you must be upstanders, that you must be involved because in essence, when you talk about bystanders, they become just as guilty as the perpetrators. And this is what happened in Germany and so on. People just stood by and let it happen. And if you listen to some of the people during after the war, and I lived in Germany after the war, they didn't know what was happening. It was all done by Hitler and a couple of his henchmen. And don't you believe that? There were thousands and thousands of people involved in the slaughter and the killing. So people did not. But it's like the old saying, it's not my act that's being gored, so you become a bystander. You let it happen because it doesn't affect you. But genocide and killings and the Holocaust, it affects all of us. <coughs> so in essence, I come here and I place a burden on your shoulders, young people, because I believe that you are stronger and smarter than sometimes you give yourself credit for, and that you can help change this world for the better in the future. Because in the not-too-distant future, you're going to be decision-makers. You're going to decide who runs this country. And you can make a difference. I say this to you because one person in my life took a chance. And because of that, I've been fortunate enough to live for as long as I have. Because as a kid, I used to pray to God to let me live till I was 25, if you can believe that because I wanted to taste what adulthood would be. And I've been fortunate enough to live over three times 25. So where did it all start and uh, how does it happen? And I think the teachers are going to deal with the history of it, but I can tell you this, that when Hitler came into power, he tried to establish a regime, a government, a lifestyle that would last for a thousand years. And only certain people would fit into the category of what an Aryan would be. And if you're not, and if you didn't fit into that picture, or that image, of his perception of what a human being should be, you were either destined to die or to put into slavery. And the irony of all this is in Germany, they started killing their own people. If you had a disability, or if you had a mental problem, you were a burden to society, 
And if you ever have a chance to visit our museum of Skokie, you'll see the signs indicating that it crossed so many thousands of marks to support a person that cannot contribute to society. So what's the point? Why do we need them? So they used to put them into trucks and reverse the exhaust pipes into the trucks and gas those people and kill them. And somehow the general population got wind of that and some of the killings went on the ground. Also, if you didn't swear allegiance to Hitler, you were either put in a concentration camp or you were eliminated. So if you were a Jehovah Witness, if you were a gypsy, you had no place in that society. And when I speak to mixed groups, I ask them how many of us here would fit into that picture of the chosen one. And Hitler was a hateful person, and he wrote a book when he was in jail in the early 18, 1918, 1920, indicating what he was going to do to the Jewish people. But nobody believed him. We thought it was another crazy and it was going to go away. But we've learned since that if somebody threatens to kill you, you better believe it. There's a man right now in a country that wants to eliminate Israel and all Jewish people. And if he had the opportunity, I feel certain that he would try and do that. So we must be cautious. We must be aware. So in the process of trying to cleanse this nation of the subhumans, the Untermenschen, Hitler and his regime and his henchmen killed, murdered over 11 million people. Six million were Jews. One and a half million were children. Children no different than any one of you sitting right here, including my little six-year-old sister who's been troubling me and paining me and aching my heart for most of my life. I just can't get over that. A six-year-old little girl. So I asked my audience to think about something. 11 million is a number, 6 million is a number, 1.5 million loses its importance. I ask each one of you to think about somebody that you care very much about. Whether it's a brother or a sister or a cousin, somebody that you love. And think about the brutality that would have been perpetrated or committed against that child. And the Holocaust and genocide, they take on a totally different meaning. Not six million that died. It's one person dying six million times. It comes home. It has a greater meaning when you talk about that. Because numbers lose their importance. I've accepted the death of my parents, my grandparents, my aunts, my uncles. But somehow I can't get away from my little sister, Sarah. That stays with you forever. And you know, Germany created a force of German soldiers that used to be policemen from the Hamburg area called the Einsatzgruppen or the Enforcement Group. There's about 3,000 former policemen and so on. Put them into one detail in the army and their job was to kill. That's their total function for their existence was to kill. So every place that Germany invaded, Poland, the Ukraine, First thing that they did as group, go into government buildings, drag out officials, communists, religious leaders, Jewish men, chase them through ravines, into the fields, and shoot. And that continued. And then ultimately these killings became greater and greater because they started killing Jews on a wholesale basis. So they would take men, women, and children out of the small towns, out of the area. You may have heard of a place called Babi Yar. 
whether we're chased or we're being and soldiers would be standing there for hours at a time shooting people I want you to imagine this if you can a man, woman, a child being chased inside of a ravine and the woman has the baby in her arms and these killers shoot her and she falls into that hole but the baby's still alive so some of the children or some of the people who were buried were still alive why? because we were considered subhumans the world was going to be better off without us we were responsible for all German ills for everything that happened and yet less than half a percent of the German population was Jewish and some of these killers enjoyed what they were doing because of their hatred towards Jews and if you can imagine these killers standing there shooting people hours and hours at a time and then go home have dinner and perhaps have a fairly normal life and then some of them were affected by these killings they began to drink some one and out so in 1941 the late 1941 and the outskirts of berlin called vance they had a conference the vance conference where officials from government and private industry most had doctor's degrees got together over lunch to deal with the final solution and the determination was made to kill every man woman and child that was Jewish under their domination and they put a man in charge called Heidrich and they built six factories to do the job Treblinka, Majdanek Kuchenwald, Auschwitz, Babier, Belzec, and there are many, many, many other concentration camps, but these are mainly the killing centers. So instead of having these poor soldiers having to go out and do the dirty work, they established a way to bring the victims to these camps under tree campus and kill them. Kill them with such brutality. There was a camp near our town that I come from called Treblinka. Treblinka was established only for one purpose and one reason, and it existed up for less than two years. And during that two-year period of time, 670,000 men, women, and children were slaughtered there. Gassed, bodies burned, any valuables in their bodies were extracted from them like the gold teeth the glasses because it became an industry and their bodies burned and thrown into the fields the ashes and that's what uh, was that my personal remembrance as a kid started when the war started and I was probably seven eight years old and Germany invaded Poland and German soldiers came into our town and the first thing they did is pull the chief rabbi out of his quarters, sheared his beard off while their cameras were taking pictures of this humiliated Jew and then they killed him and life began to change in steps in their wisdom they established a ghetto and they took about a four block area in our town designated as the ghetto and our town had a population of over 5,000 Jewish people and that area that they designated as the ghetto uh, there lived about a thousand people so they built 12 foot walls around the area with barbed wire fences 
And they would come to your house and tell you, you've got 15 minutes to gather your belongings and move into the ghetto if you lived outside the area. So what happens? If you live in a house or an apartment, suddenly you have two, three other families living with you. And conditions again begin to change. Doctors are not allowed to practice medicine. There are no medications. And you're put on rations. And the Jews were on the lowest rung of the ladder as far as rations are concerned. We were supposed to survive on 586 grams of food, I believe. And that was impossible to do. So if your parents had some money or valuables, they would sneak out of the ghetto and try to buy food from the general Polish population. And if they were caught, they were shot. And this is the way life was. And suddenly as a kid, I used to walk the streets of the ghetto, and then you see people lined up against walls of buildings, dead, waiting for a detail to come, throw them in a wagon and dump them in a hole and bury them. But what sticks in my craw and never goes away is to see little children lined up on sidewalks. Maybe three, four, five-year-olds with their eyes buggy, bugged out, dead and dying, and there's nobody that can help them. Those things stay with you forever, no matter how normal you think you are. And then the Gestapo would come into the ghetto and demand three or four hundred people for labor, another euphemism another lot and those people would be sent to Treblinka and none of them ever came back but rumors were always there in the ghetto rumors of what was happening or what was going to happen to us but in spite of all the adversity and all the killings and everything people always lived with hope that this was not going to happen to us. They weren't going to kill every Jew. They needed them for labor. And even on the way to the worst circumstances in the death camps, people still held up hope that somehow somebody would intervene. God would intervene. But none of this happened. And people died in our ghettos two, three hundred times a day, uh, people at a time each day almost. And then finally in 1942, and I want to read some of this to you. It's September 1942 and I'm 10 years old. <gasps> the Gestapo and the Ukrainian lackeys surround and invade the ghetto and start the killings. The final killings, the liquidation of all the Jewish people that are still left alive in our ghetto. It happens to be the morning of Yom Kippur, which I don't have to explain to you is a high Jewish holiday. And I remember my mother frantically pushes me as everyone runs to a hiding place. Moments ago I was sound asleep and unaware of the secret location that existed. But now I'm being herded to the second floor to a secret room in our building in the ghetto. I see a door cried open, creating a passageway for all a frightened and bewildered group. I feel bodies crashing into me. I hear screams and crying, and a terrible fear takes hold of each person. Mothers and fathers feverishly assist their young children into a square opening that's hidden by a crudely designed wooden cover. So it seems that nothing exists behind that wall. But inside the space I see a ladder, everyone at once tried to descend into this secret room. Mothers grabbed their babies as more than three dozen souls tried to squeeze into a room the size of an average bedroom. And when we all gain access to this room, the man reaches up, grabs the ladder, places it on the floor. I'm shaking. I'm trying to hold back my tears because all I can feel is this intense convulsion. I realize more than anything that I don't want to die. I was so scared of dying. My father urges me to sit next to him as he pulls my baby sister Sarah into his bosom. And in the same hiding room, 
I see it. I notice a little window that looks over the street. The killers are roaming the street in search of Jews that are hiding. Anyone that's found is beaten with a rubber truncheon. Some are shot. Others are chased up to the main gathering point in the town's marketplace. And still others are chased to the back of a house where there used to be a potato field. And now a big hole is dug and men, women, and children are lined up, shot, and dumped into that hole. And in my own mind, I was asking myself, how can all these horrors be possible on such a beautiful day? And you ask yourself, you beautiful kid, where is God and all this? My baby sister, Sarah, begins to whimper as she nestles closer to my dad, whose face reveals the terror and dismay. My father embraces her and tells her that she must be silent so we're not discovered. But in the same room, I see a young mother breastfeeding her baby and suddenly there's an outburst on that child. The mother is admonished and told that she must quiet the child so we're not discovered, but the noise continues. My eyes must be deceiving me as the distraught mother places her hand on the child's face and begins to exert pressure. The baby's legs begin to kick and flail, and then suddenly they move no more. Tears fill my eyes and instantly I wonder if my mother would do the same to me under these circumstances. <clears throat> I watch, but I feel little emotion. I only feel relief that we won't be discovered. But inside of me all I witness is my deepening fear. I'm consumed with this powerful desire to live. My friends, I don't know where it came from at 10 years of age, but I wanted to live so desperately. I don't want to die, I'm scared of the pain, I pray to God to spare me, but then I wonder why would he save me? There are other children that are much more pious than I, much better behaved than I. In my own mind I felt these are the children that will be saved, but not me. And then suddenly I hear footsteps and crashing sounds that fill the air. The wooden square is ripped away from a hiding place. A demonic face appears and vanishes. Then there's gunshots that shatter the silent screams of rouse, rouse, out. The shattering noise of bullets scream in my ears as part of me goes numb inside. And suddenly there are motionless people all around me. Some appear dead with blood pouring onto the floor. I realize now that blood fills my mouth from a bullet that hit the wall and a splinter is embedded in my upper lip. Part of me goes deeper into myself. I can see what's happening all around me, but my emotions go dead. I watch silently and pray. And then my parents are forced to climb out of a By the way, my mother is pulled out of line. My dad has little Sarah in his arms and I'm behind him. His back shields me from the blows of the Ukrainian guard. Young and old are beaten with rubber bats as we're lined up against the building of a, the outside building of a house. But one of the older women moves too slowly. A guard walks up to her, shoots her in the head. She crumbles to the ground to the amusement of these killers. And then we're forced to line up against the outside wall of our building. There's total chaos. Screams of being hurled against the wall. And all this, I keep my head to the ground, not looking at them. Desperately wanting to become invisible. Thinking that if I don't look at them, they won't see me. My teeth are chattering, my body's in total convulsion. But the sun is still bright in the sky. It's such a beautiful day. How can this be happening? And because of my religious upbringing as a youngster, because the only education I had was what I learned in Hader, where's God? How can he allow this to happen? And then you ask yourself, is there a God? And then we're chased up to the main gathering point on Ulisa Rogowska, which is where the marketplace was, and forced to sit in the square. 
They walk around us smashing people. They're not lined up correctly. And in the same marketplace, there are bloody dead bodies all around us from previous groups that they pulled out and then shipped to the trains to go to Sheplinka. And then there's an occasional cry from some old victim invoking the Lord's name. But no one seems to listen. And as we're sitting there, my father quietly bends over and whispers in my ear. I feel his trembling hand on my shoulder. He tells me that I must run and try to escape and run to a place where my sister Irene has been hidden. Still remember the words, and I can use them here, and he says, life, Arla, life. You see, before the liquidation, my parents had made arrangements with a Polish couple by the name of Gorski to take in one of the children. And my older sister, Irene, was smuggled out of the ghetto and placed with the Gorskis for safety. And I knew where she was. But I feel paralyzed. How can I escape? They'll see me and they'll shoot me. But I also know that I must do what he says. And suddenly you're not 10 anymore. You're an old man. You start thinking as an adult. And you know that if you're going to run, you can't run the straight line because if they shoot after you, they're going to hit you so you have to run zigzag. So I slowly moved to my knees and cautiously bent down and tried to move behind the line of my neighbors who are facing the guards with the automatic weapons, telling myself, keep low, keep low. So I moved to the cold, damp ground and crawl slowly behind those who are screaming and crying before me. And inch by inch, I attempt to become part of the landscape. I feel this coldness and sweat on my body. But I try to block out all the constant messages of fear. Crawling on my stomach, I finally reach the end of the marketplace and slowly slither into the open sewer that runs along the street, and I keep crawling till I felt I was out of sight. Telling myself that I must find the end of Pinkman Street, where the barbed wire fence surrounded the ghetto, and perhaps try to make my way into the free zone. But as I continue to crawl, I have this horrific thought about Sarah. Her eyes haunt me to this day. How could I have left my family? How could I have run away and left poor Sarah there with my dad? Wondering where was my mother, what will become of my dad and my little sister? Will they be forced into those dreaded cattle cars to be shipped to Treblinka to be terminated? to be exterminated with such utter brutality. Or perhaps my baby sister will be alone. And then you ask yourself, who will comfort her? Who will assure her that all will be well? Your head wants to explode. And then I run into a house that belongs to an uncle of mine. I run into the cellar of my aunt and her baby daughter. My cousin was sitting there hiding. And we spend that afternoon in that cellar, and then as nightfall came, I said, we've got to get out of here. They're going to come, they'll do another search, they'll find us, and they'll kill us. But she was just frozen with fear and wouldn't move. So I crawled out of the cellar. And like from here, past this wall, was the barbed wire fence to look around to see whether there are any guards there. And as I'm approaching closer to the barbed wire, I see a little old lady standing on the free zone on the other side of the barbed wire. Little old woman with a babushka on her head with a long skirt down to the ground. And when she saw me, she started screaming in Polish to me, Hoch, Hoch, come, come. So I started running to the barbed wire fence and I lay down on my back as I get near the barbed wires and she lifts one of the uh, barbed wire strands to help me get across. And as I do that, I cut my leg below my knee. I'm bleeding profusely, but I'm, you don't feel any pain when you're scared like that. And as I'm making my way into the free zone, and this woman pats me on the shoulder and tells me to run, I stand up, start running, and never look back. 
And my objective was to run into the forest. But before I did that, we had a lot of friends that were Polish because of our business. And I went to a restaurant owned by this woman that I knew as a kid. And I went to the back door where the kitchen was. And one of the employees opened the door and I asked to see her and she was serving food and drinks to the German soldiers and her girlfriend in the front. And he handed me, apparently she told him, he handed me a round loaf of bread. And he told me to wait outside till he's through work and he would help me. So I was sitting where the garbage dump is today, with that loaf of bread under my arm. And waiting and waiting, and then suddenly it dawned on me. I don't know if I trust this man. I don't know if it means well, means ill. I don't know if he'll turn me over to the Germans, which was a reality. So I ran away from there, and I ran into the forest. And one of the reasons I mentioned this to you about the bread is because when I ran into the forest to make a bed for myself, I would gather some leaves and branches, and I used the pillow, the, the bread as a pillow, and you go to sleep. So the fields and the forest became my safe haven on a temporary basis, but food was very difficult. And I used to roam the fields, dig up raw potatoes that the farmers have left. And those raw potatoes became my diet. And it's amazing what you leave when you're hungry enough. But food was hard to find. Hunger forces me to dig up potatoes, those raw potatoes as an indicator. And you're grateful for such good fortune. And I used to find barns with open doors once in a while, or with a loose board that I would be able to sneak in and crawl into the straw or the hay to make, a, to, to make it through the night or even during the day because I would be afraid to walk the fields. And then I decided to walk to a labor camp that existed near our town. It was called Kurchev, and they left about a thousand people for work. And I thought perhaps maybe one of my relatives, somebody would be left alive. And when I got there, they told me that my mother was still alive. What happened is when we were pulled out of a hiding place, she was pulled out of line and put on a work detail. And their job was to clean up the ghetto, pack any on all Jewish belongings that the Germans wanted, and then ship them to Germany. But they also knew that their end would be near as soon as the work was done. So I made it back into the town, found my mother. She hide me in one of the buildings, and at night she would bring me some food, whatever she could find. And we spent, I don't know, three, four weeks in that situation. And pretty soon it got into, a, I think, late November, and it gets pretty cold by then. And one day, just before the Gestapo pulled up to their workstation, she and another man escaped. They came to get me. Again, ran out of the ghetto, because there were very few people left. Ran into the fields and the forest, and because of our acquaintance with many of the farmers and the general population, my mother would go begging to our former neighbors and friends for a place to hide or some food. But unfortunately, most turned us away. And some threatened to turn us over to the Germans. And this went into December, and I'm still wearing my short pants and little jacket. And then one day, one night, I remember standing with this man next to this man, who, by the way, I didn't like it all because I felt he was taking my father's place in the life. And mother and my mother's negotiating with the farmer who's standing by the barn across from the house for a place to hide. She disappears. And then a few minutes later, she reappears. She approaches me and tells me that I must go back to the town to see if the Gorskis would take me in. She hands me a pair of earrings and a ring that she has and tells me to give this to the Gorskis or anyone else that would be willing to help me or hide me. But suddenly my world has changed. I feel totally abandoned. 
tears flow down my face, my heart is broken. Fear and a sense of desperation consumes the little boy in me. Thinking, hey, mothers are supposed to protect their children. How am I going to survive on my own? Or someone will recognize me and turn me over to the Germans. Will I die a painful death? These are all the things that go through your head. And then suddenly, you're filled with hate. Hate is all I can feel. And yet, you say to yourself, I'll show them, I'll survive. So I hide in the woods, I sneak into farmer's barns for worms. And you know another thing you learn that you cannot sleep in the forest when it's the ice and the snow is there when it's so cold. So you stay there as long as you possibly can and you're probably no more than 11 years of age. And then you roam the fields. And it's so scary, it's dark and the dogs are barking and you don't know what the next thing will happen. And you look for a barn. You look for a safe haven. And you try to sneak into that barn and hide yourself in the straw or the hay that the farmers used to have. And that continues. And then one night in a desperate mood, I knock on a farmer's door and I plead for their kind mercy. I beg them to help me. The man takes me down to the cellar of his farmhouse. And one of his daughters brings me down some hot milk, cooked milk and potatoes in it. I tell you this thing because it's been almost 70 years and I still have that taste in my mouth from that warm milk and potatoes. The slightest similarity to this type of food brings me right back into the cellar for many years. And I'm elated. I'm so filled with great emotions that they'll make me part of the family, that they'll keep me. But unfortunately, a few hours later, I'm asked to come up from the cellar, and I'm told they were fear of their life. He's afraid if the Germans find out he's helping a Jew, that they will kill the whole family. And that, my dear friends, is total reality. Any German, any Pole, that is, for helping a Jew, the whole family would be killed, the house would be burned. There was no mercy, particular mercy shown to the Pole. But in essence, they murdered over three million Poles during that time. <coughs> but what he said to me has stuck with me forever. He tells me to give myself up because there's no longer any future for people like me, so what's the point? But I want to live. So traipsing through open frozen fields that are covered with snow and ice, I tried to make my way back to Soko, to the town. My short pants and jacket don't provide much protection from the freezing cold. I can hardly feel them, and yet one difficult step at a time, I make my way back to the town. I walk into the ghetto, it's dark and it's silent, it's totally deserted, there isn't a soul left there. Walk into a house, lay down the floor and go to sleep. And next morning early, hopefully no one would see me, I start walking to the Gorskys. And I knock on Mrs. Gorsky's door, she opens the door, she sees me, she starts screaming at me for coming there. And I tell her, my mother told me that you would help me, that my sister is here. She said, your sister is not here anymore and you've got to get out of here. And I beg and I cry. And I must have done an awful job of crying and begging. She finally decides to let me up to her attic for a few days. And then she says, I must leave and find my mother again because she's not my responsibility. My mother. And I handed her the ring and the pair and that it, those earrings that I had and she hands me a bucket to use as a toilet and marches me up to her attic. I have a picture of that attic. I was just recently in Poland. We made a presentation to a survivor of the people that hid me, a Yad Vashem, righteous among nations. 
She marches me up to the attic, she pushes some straw into a sack. And the attic is nothing but a dry third floor <clears throat> with a thin roof that comes and slams right over the place of the sack beneath the uh, roof and the floor. And that becomes my safe haven. And each morning, Mrs. Gorski would come in and bring me some soup. And I remember this big green pot she always cooked in. And whatever was left in that little pot, she would give it to me and, and a slice of bread. And I remember breaking up the bread in small pieces and putting it in one of my socks for savings for, 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 for future. And she would take out my bucket. And that was the only time I would see anybody. But that was not enough to sustain me, because hunger became a preoccupation, always daydreaming of what it would be like to have a full stomach, to be able to say, hey, I've had enough. It's amazing what your mind can do for you. And it helps you survive. I used to daydream of the time when food was taken for granted. And then my days in the attic are spent in constant fear of being thrown out or killed by the Germans, asking myself, why do I have to die? What terrible sins did I commit? So most of the time I sit in silence. <coughs> I don't know if I want to get into a lot of the details of my silence in that attic, but I used to spend hours trying to delouse myself, if you can imagine that. All the time I stayed in one corner of the attic, always cold and always hungry. And sometimes kids ask me about hunger. And they said, yes, I've been hungry. I missed lunch today. I said, you don't know what hunger is. When your stomach is turning, when there's such pain in there. Never get to take a bath. And all the time I was there, cut my hair, brush my teeth, change my clothes. Loneliness is my constant and only companion in that place. The winters in that attic were extremely painful. Between the freezing cold and the terrible hunger and the desolate solitude of being alone in that totally dark and filthy place, the desperately lone existence, the long freezing nights on the earth floor that wore down second straw that was infested with lice and fleas it all bore such bitter tears from my heart. Again, why do I have to live in such fear? Why was I hasty <laughs> to die in pain? I can never totally understand that. But you know, as human beings, we have the ability to do one of two things. And naturally, as a kid, I didn't know that. We either give in to our pain and our misery and we die, or we fight it. We pretend. And somehow that helps you survive, because if you ever read the guy, an author, an Italian gentleman by the name of Primo Levi, who survived in Auschwitz, talked about people dying and people surviving under the same brutality, under the same terrible circumstance. Some gave in, became what they called Muslims, and walked into electrified wires and killed themselves, but just died. While others who went through the same misery, the same hunger, the same pain, somehow were able to survive because they would not give up their soul. They gave their body, but not their soul. And that helps you. And apparently as a kid, maybe I possessed that because I wouldn't give in. I always used to pretend that I'm someplace else, that things were normal. Uh, my imagination would flow. And then spring would come. My dreams of survival would return, imagining that I would be the only survivor and life would be so exciting. The world would welcome and embrace me. And that lasted for a little while and then ultimately 
that dream would fade and then that heat of the summer would take over. And if I can ask you to imagine what it would be like to lay underneath a thin plate roof and it's 90 degrees or better out there and those plates get so hot you can cook on them without any question and you lay there totally still soaked with sweat with the slightest movement and you hope to survive another hour one more hour till evening came and then maybe live for another day so you live an hour at a time and one day at a time and sometimes I will invite my young audience, they want to know what it's like to be in an attic under those circumstances, if their parents will permit them. They live in a house, take that little square and stick their head up there when it's really hot and see what it would be like to spend two summers there. The rats, the mice, would roam around as well in this attic, convinced that their chance of survival was greater than yours. So my days and nights are lonely. There are no friends for me to speak to or play with, except when it rains. Rain becomes my most welcome friend. And life takes on a totally new meaning for me. The rain would come down with such great force and make such thunderous noise against the thin plates of the roof that I would be able to scream, cry, even sing, and let my pent-up emotions reach the sky because no one could hear me because the pounding rain on the roof would eliminate all kinds of noise. I could scream, I could do anything. And then, unfortunately, the rain would stop and the fear and the hunger would return. And because of sheer boredom, I'm a kid, I'm going nuts in that attic. I wanted to see what the backyard looked like. So I would separate a spot between the plates that, that met, you know, to, to form the roof, to look into the backyard. And one sunny spring day, a little girl caught my attention in, in the backyard. She was the daughter of one of the tenants that lived below. They had two tenants living below. And this little girl was jumping up and down with a little bowl of strawberries and eating strawberries. My heart was breaking from the pain and envy. Down there there's a child eating strawberries. And life seems so normal up here. I'm hiding from my life. Suddenly asking myself, hey, if you're not Jewish, you like what you like her. Some be sick with envy. And it seems I can never forget that little girl or the strawberries. The question that I sometimes kids ask me, would I have given up my religion at that particular time? Absolutely. Because I wanted to live so desperately. But then I'm also filled with dreams. I imagine that all this would soon be over, that I would see my mother, my dad, and perhaps my little sister. I imagine that maybe we would be together again, and then I'm not cold or scared anymore. No more hunger, no more pain in my stomach, not enough of food, and finally, no more loneliness. I live in that attic for nearly two years eventually were liberated by the Russian army. <clears throat> but then everything is different now. Out of the 6,000 Jews that lived in that town, only 29 people survived. Only two children. From the whole town's population survived on their own. My sister Irene and I. My poor dad dies in the gas chambers of Treblinka. And my mother survives in hiding in the same months before we're liberated, Mrs. Gursky comes running into the attic to tell me they just left my mother in. After the war, I found out that she was hiding with this man in a farmer's barn, who we happened to know. He caught her instead of letting her go. He called his field hands, they grabbed her, they wrestled her to the ground, they tied her up, threw her on his manure wagon, 
and brought her into town, turned her over to the Gestapo, and she was shot in the town cemetery. And according to Mrs. Gorski, my mother was pregnant. And my poor little sister Sarah, who's been troubling me for most of my life, dies in the gas chambers of Treblinka, perhaps on the way to the gas chambers. And not knowing exactly how she died, I've created this terrible image of her death. And I wrote this down. My little sister being pushed into a cattle car that's overcrowded with people of all ages, <coughs> destined to that infamous death camp called Treblinka. And you know, some of the victims died before they even reached the death camp because they used to shove in 120 people into a cattle car, standing room only. And if you fell down, you never got up. People would step on you unintentionally, and you would die. Who was there to hold her, to assure her that all will be well or all will be right? Or being alone as a six-year-old among strangers, possibly pushed to the ground or stepped on as so many others were? And assuming she survived that trip, that, that trip to Treblinka, chased into a large sorting room, larger than this, with women and children, where their clothes were taken away from them. Her black, long hair shorn from her head, under pretense of taking a shower, and then chased into another room. For that shower, but instead of water, poison gas would pour down on them in order to choke and kill them. The choking gas would cause the bigger and the stronger to climb on top of each other in order to reach out for any air that's still left at the ceiling level. And in their struggle, the weaker and the smaller are destined to the bottom of the heap. That that struggle causes them to lose control of all their bodily functions and they die in agony. And as old as I am, and as much I've accepted the idea that my mom and my dad and my uncles and my aunts and my grandparents have all been murdered, I can't, can't accept that. This podcast was recorded and produced by Ken Burke on behalf of Rabbi Shalom and Kol Hadash in conjunction with Repatriation Studios. I'm Ken Burke, and thank you for listening.